welcome to Civil-ish. This is Johnny, your host. This is the show about respecting the differences of all of those people out there that are so different than we are, and yet we can still get along if we just understand each other a little better, if we take the time to communicate. And that's what we do on this show. Today, we have a great show with Paul Lamb. He's currently the executive director of Defy Ventures of Northern California. They provide entrepreneurship training, career and development training, personal development training to incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. It's a great conversation today that you would do me a big favor if you would share this with your friends, if you would like this, and so that other people can hear what we're talking about. And now, on with the show. Well, welcome to Civil-ish. We're so happy today to have Paul Lamb with us. He is the Executive Director of Defy Ventures of Northern California. Paul, thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Let's go ahead and get started because my first question that I like to ask everyone is, who are you? What makes you, you? (laughs) What a great question. I ask myself that question every day. Who am I? Uh, as I wake up in the morning, well, I am a um, a husband, a father, a lover, not a fighter, um, and someone who is doing my best to try and make a difference in the world. That's a great one. Doing your best to make a difference. I think a lot of us are drawn to that sort of thing. I know and many times in my life, I've began to wonder, what am I doing exactly? And that's when I always start to look at nonprofit jobs every time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, you and me both. So you're drawn to service in so many ways, it seems. I've looked at a little, I read a little about your background, and you've been in the nonprofit world for a long time. Why are you drawn to service in such a way? Yeah, I um I started my career in the private sector and while I enjoyed, you know, working in, in the business environment, I found that I wasn't really fulfilled in the way that I wanted to be. And I turned to to a new path um where I could be uh in a position of greater service, I think, in a different way. And it's it's you know turned out to be the love of my life. Well, that's fantastic. Go ahead and tell us a little about where you're at right now, Defy Ventures. Sure. So I'm the uh, executive director, as you said, of of Defy Ventures of Northern California. We're a a national organization that provides uh, career readiness, entrepreneurship training, and personal development for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals. I've actually worked a little... I volunteered a little with a group that does something not quite on the scale that you do, but that's great that you're doing that. Because I read on your website, you're trying to break generational legacies of poverty and incarceration. What does it take to do that? Boy, it's it's not easy. And just to provide some context, um, we in the in the United States have about five percent of the world's population. And we uh, incarcerate um, about 20%, uh, or we house about 20% of all incarcerated individuals globally. Um, so basically, one out, of, uh, one out of five globally is incarcerated here in the U.S. 
And for women, it's even greater. It's about one out of three. So it's a tremendous problem. We have well over 2 million folks in the, in the prison uh, system right now, nationally. And in California, if you were to combine all of the folks in prison or on parole or probation, um, you would have basically a city uh, larger than, population-wise, a city larger than Sacramento. So all of that to say that this is a massive problem that's not easily tackled, but our approach has been that um, we find it really important to start the process of change uh, right in the prisons and then have a direct line for folks when they're released that we can work with them to get jobs, to get education, housing, start a business if they want to do that. But basically, if you look at all the, uh, all the statistics, all the studies, the two factors that really make a difference and, and prevent people from recidivating are jobs and education. And we tackle the jobs front. You let off with a couple of percentages out there. And I want to go back to those for just a quick second. Why? do we house 20 to 25% of the entire incarcerated population? Why do we do that? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. And it's, it's not an easy one to answer. I mean, I think there are issues that go back, you know, hundreds of years in terms of uh, how black and brown people have been treated in this country, how they've been perceived how they have been uh, warehoused in a, in a sense. Um, we saw a huge rise in the incarcerated population in the 1980s and 1990s uh, following, uh, you know, the crack epidemic and, and other, you know, drug instances of, of high drug usage. And there was a, a perception in the country uh, during that time then uh, individuals uh, who are particularly coming from those communities uh, were super predators, and a series of laws were passed that increased the number of folks, and mostly black and brown folks, in our prison systems over 700% from the 1970s uh, to the end of, of the 20th century. So we've created this massive population. You've probably heard of the term the prison industrial complex. Uh, meaning all of these industries that have been created around building prisons and supporting prisons, et cetera, that are now so entrenched, it's easier to keep people incarcerated uh, in, in a sense than it is to actually have them uh, released and, and, and be on the outside. So there are a lot of issues, I think a lot of underlying issues there. But basically, we as a country have made a decision that um, we're going to take a group of people and we're going to take uh, their rights, um, not to say that folks haven't committed crimes and, and done you know, uh, wrong things, but we have decided that we are going to take this group and keep them in this place and manage that as, an, as a, its own kind of ecosystem um, and not focus as much energy on looking at reform and change and possibilities and hope for something different than we've already uh, imagined. Wow. So we've decided to take an entire population of people and incarcerate them. My question is, for those of us that are at this point not incarcerated, 
what does that accomplish to have all these people incarcerated? Do we believe in redemption? Do we believe in rehabilitation or is it simply to get them out of the way? Yeah, what a, what a great question. I, I think it's a little bit of both and it depends on who you talk to. But um, I think, you know, I'm, I tend to be an optimist and I think most people believe in, in redemption and, and second chances. But, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to, uh, a system around that is, is much harder to build than a cage, right? It's much easier to put people in a, in a cage and to really work hard at uh, thinking about, you know, new possibilities. And, uh, you know, it's one of the things we work at at Defy really is, is changing the hearts and minds of individuals. You bring people into the prisons and give them an opportunity to interact um, with inmates directly. And we start to see a shift in the way that, that people from the outside perceive people on the inside. And as that shift occurs, you know, you start to see, I think our, our folks start to see the possibilities or imagine the possibilities of something different, particularly for people who need a second chance. And in a lot of cases, haven't even had a first chance. So how can you work with those people, support those people, make sure that uh, they do have a second chance and that we try to eradicate you know, this disease, basically, of, of incarceration in our country. One of the things right there that you said struck out or stuck out for me just a little bit, because I've heard many times about trying to change the, I'm going to call it worldview, of the person coming out to so that they can see the world in a different way and perhaps interact with it differently. But you're doing something different. In addition to that, you're trying to change the average person on the streets worldview toward those incarcerated as well. Mm-hmm. That's huh. right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't kind of going back to some of the other questions you, you asked about both how we perceive this and what we do about it. Nothing's going to change uh, unless uh, a majority of folks say, hey, wait a minute we can and should give people a second chance. And these are human beings. They're not, you know, orange jumpsuits on, on TV, uh, murderers and rapists. You know, these are people largely, you know, who have, committed, who have not committed violent crimes, who have tremendous value and importance and gifts and skills and, and genius in, in a lot of cases. Um, and when we see that, uh, we ourselves, meaning us on the outside, make a decision to commit to helping those people achieve their dreams. You know, someone who's come from an extremely uh, impoverished background, has grown up in gang culture, et cetera, does not have the same opportunities uh, as someone who is not from that, that background in that environment. So that's why I say, you know, let's give people a, a first chance in many cases. And once we realize that and we agree that, you know, A, someone deserves a chance and B, they have tremendous value, and that's when things shift. One of the things that went through my mind as we're talking about this, and you hit at it earlier, but maybe we want to hit a little, hit on it a little closer because I want to ask the question, why bother? Mm-hmm. Well, for me, the answer is we don't have a choice, as uh, both from a philo- philosophical perspective as well as just a a human perspective. Philosophically, 
are we prepared to invest uh, and maintain, invest in and maintain this, this incredibly large ecosystem of incarceration? Um, and it's growing. Um, it's, you know, roughly in the state of California, it costs about $70,000 plus a year to house uh, an inmate in your average prison. Are we willing to make that investment, uh, you know, on an ongoing basis and pay more and more every year? Or do we see an opportunity to give someone a chance who could actually go to work and, and make money and pay taxes and do all these things that we hope and expect people to do in civil society. So, you know, from that perspective, if you look at it in terms of dollars and cents, just the, the opportunities, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's, you know, it's, it's not, it's easier said than done for sure. But there are, there are models, including our own, that, you know, have been proven to work. We have about a 7% recidivism rate among our program graduates and participants. And then just quickly back to the human side, you know, uh, we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we value human beings? How much mm-hmm. of a commitment are we willing to make to support individuals um, who need help, who are perhaps in, who are the most vulnerable, um, who have the most barriers? As, you know, as a human being, uh, shouldn't we be prepared to give everything we've got um, to to provide an opportunity for someone who may not have one. That's good. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And you are getting at something that I wanted to hit at a little later. But before I got there, I wanted to ask you, because you also alluded to this earlier as well. Talk a little more about race and incarceration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly a, a timely topic, or at least one that is getting more exposure these days. If you look at the, you know, the current prison population across the country, roughly 80% of incarcerated individuals and those in the criminal justice system are black and brown individuals. And there is a clear line between things like police uh, violence and discrimination and social injustice toward black and brown communities, and the number of folks that end up in the prison system related, you know, to sort of systematic racism and systematic injustice writ writ large. So more specifically, people who are being stopped on the street, uh, more so, you know, one population more so than the other, um, are being arrested and uh, imprisoned or, or, or tried and convicted are going to end up uh, in, in the prison system to a much greater extent than another population, meaning a, a white or, or other uh, race or ethnicity. So, you know, there's, it's interesting because right now with, with George Floyd, the George Floyd killing and a lot of mm-hmm. the interest that's being generated around um, social injustice with regard to black and brown folks, um, it sort of revives that conversation of how and why are, are people disproportionately from these communities ending up in, in prison? Um, and it's not the easy answer is because, well, they're, you know, they commit a lot of crimes and, and they're bad and, and they, you know, 
they are not responsible or accountable, whatever uh, you know you might you might think. It's it's also due, or I shouldn't say also. It is it is due um, in in large part to this uh, perception and and the way we treat people and value people. If we see them as less, and that's kind of built into systemic you know systems of injustice and discrimination. If we see the, them as less, then we're going to be less willing to protect them um, and and you know leave them. It's easier to leave them in again these sort of warehouses of, of incarceration than to think about how we can support people and give them you know new opportunities and second chances. Wow, there's a lot there, and there's a whole lot that could be talked about, <laughs> especially given the times we are in at this Absolutely. moment. Those are good. Let me move to the next thing. You you talked about this a bit already. And I asked the question because I, this was one of my favorite questions. What does it mean to be human? And this is a value of every human being question. And what must be present for that value to be recognized? And I'm going to follow it up with, under what circumstances would that answer change? Wow. What does it mean to be human? For me, I, I would say, you know, at a, on, a, on a personal level, it means to be human when you feel loved um, and can express love at the, at the, at the core, I think that's how I would frame it. And, and I think about it and, you know, sort of what you need to be loved and <laughs> to be loving is a nurturing environment. And um, I think in a nurturing environment where uh, there is love, and there are opportunities both to be loved and to love. Um, anything is possible. Well, now I have a question. You just made me think of something. Because the answer that you just gave right there, I'm wondering, that I'm, I'm assuming a lot. I'm assuming is dangerous. I get that. So stop me if I'm wrong. People that are in jail, that are incarcerated, they're not necessarily being loved. It's not a nurturing environment. Let's call it that. Right. Your definition, does it leave them out of being human? I, I think to a large extent it does. You know, if you expect someone to be loving, if you expect them to be kind, um, you can't put them in an environment um, that is is designed to treat them as uh, an, an animal, someone who is uh, seen as a liability, as a risk, as a danger. If you put that lens on people and create a system around it, absolutely not. You, you, know, you, you are not creating conditions uh, of, of love, both to, to allow people to love and to be loved. So you're, you're trying to do the work to change that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we again, we see it as a two-part formula. We need to value people um, as people and look at their, uh, their gifts and their value and their skills and their possibilities on the one hand, really try to, to identify those things and lift those things up. 
And then on the other side, to make sure that the people on the outside looking in who don't see necessarily those things, we sort of lift up the curtain and give them a chance to see that. And again, I think when those shifts happen on on either side, on the inside and the outside, that's when meaningful change can happen. So how about this? Well, first off, before I even go this far, your 7% recidivism rate, I'm impressed. That's pretty impressive. So that's fantastic. And congratulations on that, because I understand that most people just on their own, they get out of jail, they decide, I'm going to do it differently this time. And the rate is much, much worse. Right. When somebody doesn't come alongside and walk with them as you are doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, Excellent. So in an ideal world, what would be the fix, public policy or otherwise, that would solve what the five ventures is trying to accomplish in reducing recidivism and integrate ex-offenders into society? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's a complex answer. You know, there certainly there are public policy aspects, things like um, dealing with unfair sentencing laws. And looking at, at you know nonviolent offenders, um, how you know we can keep them out of the system, and, and develop laws around that. Um, there are you know things like programs like ours that are working directly with folks in a variety of different ways to help them be successful and keep them out of you know out of out of the prisons. Um, there are the employers who look at these populations as assets. And and, uh, you may have heard of the term fair chance employers. You know, there is a need for more of of those companies and employers that are willing to take, you know, a risk and to work with folks, you know, who have been incarcerated. And then, you know, there's just, I think, the the, uh, perception uh, issue. Mm -hmm. If we can, you know, break break down the barriers in, in perception among, you know, people in general, all of those things combined, I think, can be a powerful solution or, or offer a possible solution to the, to the problem. Perception. Uh, there's a lot there, and perception is certainly one of them. The way that the guys, the men and women coming out or are in perceive themselves, the way that we perceive them, the way that they perceive us. Mm. At the same time, exactly. Yeah, there's there's definitely a perception divide um, on both sides. It split the divide. You know, it separates both sides. Yes, I am wondering about that perception divide. I've talked to another nonprofit who does some some similar work with people coming out of jail as well. At what point? You're you're starting to build those relationships with the guys, the men and women on the inside. Mm-hmm. Have they? You don't have to generally talk people into it. They've come to this epiphany moment before they come to you. Is that correct or no? Yeah, I th- I think it is. I mean, we deal with a lot of uh, lifers, folks who are have spent a lot of time in in prison and have had time to think and kind of evaluate where they are and, and you know where they where they want to be. And I, you know, you'd be surprised the number of folks who are incarcerated that do want to learn, that do want to grow, that do want to become 
when they are incarcerated. So we found that, you know, we have more demand than, than we can possibly accommodate in our programs, um, both because there's this, you know, this, this level of interest in, in, you know, changing oneself as well as, um, the, the, the opportunities thinking forward about what happens next. Well, given the prison industrial complex, you're always going to have a lot of work. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> I, would, I would love nothing more than for us to be put out of business, honestly. So there's no nonprofit industrial complex. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, just uh, <laughs> if there's no, if there, you know, there's not a need for people to support prison populations because the prison populations have diminished uh, significantly, then yes, uh, that would be a, a wonderful thing. That's great. That's great. One of the last things I want to do is give you the last word. Go ahead and tell us anything else that's on your mind real quick and how people can find you if you if they want to find you and your work. Sure. I would say, you know, lastly, given the time we're living in, and specifically I'm, I'm referencing uh, all of the social turmoil that we're dealing with on top of the, the pandemic, to, you know, be thinking about what is the connection between all of all of the systematic racism and, and social injustices and why people are, are incarcerated um, and what maybe you can do about that. And I think there are a lot of things that, that people can do. Um, you know, if you visit our, our website, defyventures.org, there are lots of opportunities for people to volunteer and to support our program. And I want to encourage everyone to, to check it out. And be kind, be human, be loving, be brave. And as the tagline on your signature says, go visit a prison. Exactly. Come with us. Come to a prison. Come with us. Thank you so much, Paul, for your time today. You've been listening to Civilish with Johnny Bird, and I've had Paul Lamb on today, the executive director of Defy Ventures of Northern California. Race, socioeconomics, the value of people. This is heady stuff and certainly worth talking about. Thanks for joining today. And thank you, Paul, for being here. I'm Johnny Bird on Civilish, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.